The last few years has seen a transformation in our working lives. COVID has radically altered the way we work, with a hybrid approach seeing people spending as much time working from home as in the office. For companies to persuade people back to the office and attract new talent, they now have to offer attractive, comfortable spaces to provide opportunities for creativity and collaboration. The days of employees working 9 to 5 on a bank of overlooked desks in a stuffy room are over. People want a variety of spaces that suit their moods and the tasks in hand. Lighting has a large part to play in making people feel healthy and comfortable at work, whether it's through human-centric lighting or access to daylight and exterior views. Of course, any lighting strategy has to minimise the energy used. With lighting making up around 70% of energy use in an office, it's imperative that designers look at strategies that minimise energy use, therefore reducing costs and the carbon in their projects. Our podcast will explore the current trends in lighting around design, people and performance, and we'll look at how automated controls can help reduce energy use. We have three guests today. Miguel Aguado, Marketing and Technology Manager at Luchon Electronics. Juan Ferrari, who is a lighting designer who leads the London lighting design team at Hawley. And Bob Bohannon, who is Head of Policy at Lighting Industry Association. He is also a past president of the Society of Light and Lighting and leads the team that wrote Sibsi's TM66 on circuit lighting. Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. Hello. 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 Um, so I'm just going to kick off and ask you in turn, what are the key trends in commercial lighting as you see it at the moment? I'll start with Miguel. So, so commercial lighting, I think, has seen clearly a digital transformation, but also the, the LED has swept over all the aspects of, of lighting in the office, which has led its, to similar challenges with how you control LEDs. And I think control has become increasingly more important to make sure that you have the right light in the right space. And the latest thing that we've seen, certainly in offices, is, a, is, is increasing adoption of tunable white light sources, Dali Type 8 making a big splash lately. And we see flexibility in the office becoming increasingly important in today's uh, landscape, I would say. I, I would agree with Miguel. One of the things that clients ask us most of the time nowadays is having the flexibility uh, which in some way contradicts the notion of a Cate office, and therefore we are moving away from Cate, uh, and we are inbuilding systems that actually will give the, the tenant and the, the end user the flexibility that they require. There is this obviously human-centric approach to lighting that is quite critical, and that's done through the flexibility not only of controls, but, uh, but of light sources, of positioning, of, of different types of fittings that you're using. And this transition between an office and a home because the home starts working as an office and the office starts working as a place that needs to look like home because it needs to be appealing for the people using it and therefore why would they go to a chicken farm? So I think that it's summarising is flexibility and human-centric approach to the rig, for a better word, that is placed in a commercial space. Yeah, Bobby, you've seen the same from your perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Um, everything Miguel and Juan said is bang on. You know, let's, your introduction comments were about COVID. So everybody went home. Suddenly, we didn't have wall-to-wall corner-to-corner lighting. We had our own task light. We had our own desk. And we had a window. You know, on the whole, nobody died. Now, this idea that you have to light it as a cat fit out with 500 lux, 0.6 uniformity, CRI and CCT, just to meet the legal requirements, you know, well, sorry, no, we've moved on from there. We have to have the flexibility. You mentioned about the energy cost. What about the staff cost? So we need this flexibility. And then what's the biggest thing coming at us? Well, not actually circular economy, that's important, but net zero. 
So net zero means that we start lighting the desks and the spaces that people are sitting at when they're there. So it's high environmental quality for the time it's occupied by a human, not lighting carpet tiles. And that brings us into the whole thing of controls. If I can pick up on a couple of things, because going back to your comments about COVID and Bob's absolutely spot on, you transition people that were in absolute control of their environment, and now you're trying to bring them back to a space where they traditionally had no control at all over their environment. And lighting is low-hanging fruit to make people engaged, because not only provides a valuable benefit immediately because of the visual aspect of it, but just the control aspect. I can tune it to be what I want it to be. And that's incredibly important, we see. Two more things that just summarize all of these conversations. Yes, net zero is something that is in clients' mouth constantly. And retrofits. And retrofits and refurbishment of fittings and reuse of existing fittings. So reuse of materials. So all of that, it's a, it's a conversation. It's a big conversation. And the other thing is access to daylight, which is absolutely critical in this whole conversation. So I think that if you have to summarize it uh, in, in one word per each point that we touch, we talk about net zero carbon, we talk about flexibility, we talk about lighting controls, we can up access to daylight. And overarching all of that is a human-centric approach to the lighting that is being proposed for the commercial space. And how much is that, of that is coming from the clients and how much of that is coming from the designers uh, informing the clients about the benefits of human-centric uh, lighting? It is an interesting question. I think that some of the clients are very forward-thinking and they do push us in that direction when it comes to actually executing that dream. And it's not a cost thing, it's a fear to the unknown thing. They struggle and they go like, well, shall we go back to grids? Shall we go back to this? Shall we go back to that? Because it's getting too complex, not realistically complex, but in their mind, very complex as a change. So we need to help them through that journey. And it's not just our responsibility as designers, but obviously it's a joint conversation between manufacturers, designers, uh, entities and bodies that regulate the, the, the lighting industry to make sure that message is easy for them to understand and then they can push it forward confidently. Uh, yeah, what, what would you say that would make that message understandable, I suppose, to, to our listeners who might be a, a building uh, manager or owner? So to me, uh, certainly there are performance standards out there that you can look at today, like the well-building standard. It talks about things like uh, connection to the outdoors, daylight access, even talks about automated blinds and shades to make sure that you have the right ability to tune, not only to avoid glare, which is a problem, but that's a performance standard that helps you guide your design choices. But from my perspective, as, as, as working for Lutron and what we do, it's about enabling designers to make sure that they have the tools to do what they want. And that speaks to flexibility, which speaks to digital control, or wireless control to make sure that you can adjust your space however you need it. And I want to pick up on something that Juan said, which is cut A, most often than not, is wrong the moment people move in. Because now you have the lighting design to meet a basic requirement that when you have an actual, you rent out that space, now a business moves in, and that now is not ready for the people. So you have two choices. Either you redesign, throw things away, that becomes wasteful, Carbon and trapped, it's, it's, it's really, really bad for the environment. But also, it adds cost. And I think our goal is to make sure that we add value while removing cost. And that's where the flexibility and digital control and wireless is increasingly important. And that's where TM66 came in. It was stop people rolling out generic, commodified, short life, 600 square panels 
which were made down to a price to get a two and a half year return on investment without any thought for the humans involved and with actually a very low regard for the planet. So, you know, as one said, you know, we're, we're getting asked, how do we refurbish what we've got? How do we reuse it? How do we move it? How do we deliver that flexibility? And at home, you had that flexibility. So, you know, we do need to deliver criteria. If you're going to sit at your desk, you've got to be lit correctly. It's got to be a comfortable environment. If you're working late, and everybody in lighting does work late, what happens when you're the last one in that big office? You know, you don't just want to be in this dark space. How is it going to look beyond there, the walls? And these are things which lighting controls can enable. One was with me in a meeting out in Brussels a couple of weeks ago, and we had this great presentation. And the chap said, you know, LED delivers, it's a digital technology. At the moment, we've looked at the light source and we haven't looked at the controls. And actual fact, when we, years ago, when we were moving, transitioning to LED, there was a government-appointed czar for LED. And he actually said the whole point of LED was to enable controls. We did half the job. So we're catching up now on the control side. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Now, now, actually, now Part L now require, has explicit requirements for lighting control which before it was, there were ways around it because what people potentially don't realize is that no matter how efficient your lighting is, if now you add a good lighting control system, you're going to get probably between 50 and 60% over that efficiency just by turning the lights off at the right time or tuning the light intensity, which is often neglected. Could you just summarize uh, the parcel changes? Sure. So basically, uh, if I boil it down very simplistically, says whenever you have people moving in and out, have a presence detection, if you have a shared space, probably you would need to have time clock events to turn the lights off at the right time, but also press detection is very important. If there is a window, use daylight and have controls readily available so people can tune the light to what they need it to be. That's the basic, most basic approach to it. There are nuances to it, of course, but the thing that part L is about is energy savings, which is critical because net zero is very important. By 2050, those goals are very aggressive. And going back to my point to Juan before, refurbishments and retrofits. 80% of the buildings that are in use today, that will be in use in 2050, already exist today. This comes from the uh, Green Green Building Council, I think. And that's incredibly important when you look at the work that needs to happen to retrofit those installations and how you're going to do it. That's very, very critical. Just on Partel, are you seeing people wanting to go beyond that or they just want want to reach Well, I was going to pick up on, on exactly that. I think that legislation, guide and standards all follow design. And technology. They never lead. If we're waiting for Partel to lead us, we're doomed because they're coming a step behind. So as designers, as manufacturers, as people within the industry working day day in, day out on it, we just need to make sure those boundaries are pushed. Sometimes we push too hard uh, and sometimes when we when you push too hard, what happens is that you actually in some way restrict yourself. But we need to make sure that we keep on actually pushing. And also there is this conversation about Partel not delivering you human-centric lighting, isn't it? Bartel delivers you a package or tries to deliver you a package that is energy efficient that will get you into the net zero conversation or the net zero targets that you're setting yourself to. But it's not going to deliver good lighting. Um, and, and and that is a very interesting conversation. It is it is up to designers, and, and I'm saying designers because it's what I do, but obviously it's the design industry or the, 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 the lighting industry to actually move forward and then ask the legislation I and guidance. I wanted to ask you actually for listeners who aren't familiar, you know, what are the benefits of human centric 
lighting and, <laughs> and uh, yeah, could summarise what it is and what it might do for, for occupants. Human-centric lighting is not tunable white to start with. Let's actually be very clear on that front. Uh, there is a lot of conversations out there that summarise and bastardise the conversation of, of, of human-centric lighting into tunable white sources. It's a very complex subject, and I have to admit that you always, every time you start speaking about it, you feel that you're going to run short of what the technical explanation should be. In essence, is something that affects human in a positive way, that doesn't try to manipulate humans, but that gives them the comfort and flexibility that the humans as users are requiring for a particular space. Um, I would like to leave it there because the, the technical side of the whole complex, uh, yeah, maybe Bob, you can actually add on to that. But Well, one of the, uh, there's a quote I often use, uh, not by me, I wasn't clever enough, which is, the universe is made of stories, not of atoms. And when I'm explaining human-centric, let's go back to our beginnings of, of early man, or early humans, I should say. You woke up in mid-tones of skylight, mid-color temperatures. You went out and you hunted, you gathered, you built camp under very bright, high-level, cold sunlight and daylight. You came back to your camp at night with the low-set fire, and that's where you cooked your food, swapped your tribal stories, maybe made the next generation. And we, and the, no, the lighting changed by the season. It changed through the day. That's how humans are constructed for for variation, dynamic light. Nobody said we were designed to sit in 500 lux of static light for eight hours a day in a fluorescent lit office. If it's wintertime and you're in London and you go to work on the tube and you never see daylight, you actually, we are daylight deprived species. We're sitting here as a team in a window lit, very nice space, now, we all know that when we leave this building and we hit the fresh air and we hit the... All of a sudden, we'll feel this relaxation. Yeah. And it's how to enable that with daylight, availability of daylight, and then dynamism within the artificial lighting. It's lighting for humans. And picking up on that, because last week I hosted, we hosted uh, Bob and Orania the Secretary General of uh, Light in Europe as well, and we were showing them our boardroom in our experience center in London. Um, basically, I love this setting because if you set very warm light at very high level, it feels intuitively wrong just because of how the sun and winter are with the daylight. And if you set very cool light at a very low level, it also feels wrong. We all know what bad lighting is. The challenge of this industry and good control design and good lighting design is that when it's great you don't notice it you only notice it when it's bad it's a it's it's a it's a it's a killer isn't it because lighting is always like that i was um, watching a show um one of my kids the other day and the lighting desk got disconnected and the show went into blackout and then reset to a preset setting which was terrible in the thing and actually the sound has been failing for the entire show, but nobody really noticed the sound failing, but everybody would point out at the end of the show that the lighting had failed at that particular moment. So lighting is unforgiving in that respect. I think that the, the setting of human-centric light and the ethos behind human-centric light, yes, look at that, your circadian rhythm, yes, look at the, uh, at, at the, at the physiological and, and psychological nature of human beings, 
But it's more than anything, if you want to summarize it, is what your preferences are. And if you cannot have those preferences, you feel deprived. And if you feel deprived, then all of the things about you go wrong. It can be um, physically, and I suppose that from a medical perspective, you can analyze all of these parameters. They're very complex, but it, it actually is more of psychological side of things, which if you feel that you're in the right space, in the right time set to your own preference, you would be fine. So it's not something you can really prove through science to a client? Oh, no, yes. you, you, no, can, you, know, you can, can prove you can. it through yeah. science. Yeah. I, I, I just, I think I basically that's a whole level of different conversation. I mean, might bore you with the details of, and we might well, not want to go in there. But but to but a client, I to, if you're so, talking to a client, what, what Well, yeah, if the client is, is, is up for them. understanding, what I want the client not to do is, I will start with the opposite. I will try, try to actually make the client understand that tunable white it's not human-centric light. Correct. It's just a technology. That, could, could you just explain that to, to listeners? What you oh, mean yeah. Well, but basically, tunable white is a technology that we have available in lighting that basically mix two color temperatures together to achieve a, a different tone of white light, a different color temperature in white light, which is part of what you will inbuilt as flexibility if you were truly embedding a human-centric system. But not the only thing that makes up a human-centric system because do you know why it can be set in any way, shape or form? Yeah, and you might actually be pick on, picking up the wrong settings for the user that is actually in there. And the user might feel completely wrong in that particular space. So no, but buying a fitting that is general white, you will get the result of having human-centric lighting. It's how you set it. Not, not only that technology, but you can actually talk about any white light technology or any color technology embedded into the, the user side of things. Human-centric is design. It's not a technology. Human-centric is design. Yeah, you would, you would summarize it and like that. And there's an appropriateness. Yes. You know, if, if I'm teaching lighting and you sometimes get people say, well, I'm not a designer. So, okay, fine. So let's just think you could design the lighting for a fast food restaurant. Describe the lighting. Doesn't take long before they say, well, it's cold, white, high-level lighting, bright. Why? They want to look efficient. They want you to come in, get your food, get out. Now design the lighting for a restaurant you're taking your significant other to. All of a sudden, they're going to use words. It's non-uniform. It's warm. It's pooly. You know, why? The restaurant want you to stay. They make the money on Time. The desserts, the coffee, the alcohol. You can then just tell people, but that's how we've responded over the years. And the key one, you know, we've all learned, we've all came here from the shoulders of giants. And I remember people who mentored me, you know, like Thomas Passon, Barry Wild. And a key thing that they've always said, it's lighting for the objectives of the organization you're lighting for. Yep. How does lighting deliver? Now, if it's an office building, then it's everything from productivity to staff retention to motivation and that feeling of the place. You know, if it's retail or if, if it's hospitality, it's all these things we can deliver. And part of that is flexibility in the lighting and making it appropriate through the day, through the year. For the activity. Yeah, for the activity. Um, because that's how... To That's be honest, how we I, work I, as humans. I, I am more inclined to think that human-centric lighting is related to the psychological side of the conversation, not to the physiological side. Playing God is quite complex, you know. <laughs> Playing, saying, I'm going to affect the people that work. It's, it's what you do with plants and with chickens in battery par farms. And, and we think that it's wrong with chickens. Imagine if we do it for ourselves. So starting a conversation about human-centric saying, I will increase productivity by just ramping up the color temperature. No. It's just not right. Exactly. It's more early, not right. And, and, and it's not true either. It's, it's unethical. And also it has exactly. could have dire consequences to the health of the people and, mm -hmm. and the productivity in the long term. Yeah. And in fact, 
something that I think it's obvious, but we are, it's a preference. Psychological aspect of it is going to manifest way faster than any actual medical impact or health impact because you just want your space the way you want your space. And that's going to impact the productivity ambience of an office faster than anything else. So it's, it's, you need to balance both. And how optimistic are you that this message is getting across? I've no, no, for example, in the last couple of years, I noticed that all the Starbucks on the A1, they've got lower lighting in the evening and it feels quite a warm space. Yeah. Well, so I think it's, it's an option. It's right? becoming mainstream. It's welcoming. Uh, you know, we're talking about working from home. You know, I've got tunable white in, you know, where I work from home. Why? Because when I start off the daytime, I'll bring it up nice and bright. I'll bring it up if I'm on a Teams meeting. I'll dim it back a bit in between whiles. I'll be playing with the Velux windows. And at night, I'm going to dim it down a bit and set it warm because I don't want you know, blue light coming into my eyes before I go to bed. Yep. Fine. You know, discuss on the screens, et cetera, et cetera, because you've also got to understand, fine, so you've made this lovely tunable white and you've got a very blue screen. Well, excuse me, that's trying to explain to your teenagers. We'll talk about children before we started. You try to explain to a child who want to be on their iPhone all night that, sorry, their whole eye-brain systems haven't evolved in less than the life cycle of when they invented the iPhone. But take another bit of context, depend, if you're looking on it, if you're looking at my bank balance on a nice warm iPhone screen, it's probably going to keep me awake anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so you, as we can't make this thing super simple. And when you boil lighting down to a watts per square meter on the four basic metrics of 500 lux across an office on a cat scheme, that's not meeting anybody's objectives, but a little bit of um, the legals on getting your building built. But I think, I, going back to your question there, because I think it's very, very interesting the way you phrased it, is this getting through? Are people actually adopting this? And I think people have gotten more and more used to adjusting their environment, especially at home. And that's going to make its way into the professional environment. And in fact, if you look at adoption rates of smart home technology in homes, there are mainly two drivers for it. Your smart speaker of whatever flavor that you want, plus lighting. I want to adjust my lighting. And those two things now have become adopted into the office more and more because people have expectations. And you need to attract people back to the office. And I do believe the office needs to change the way it's managed to, to put, uh, as Juan says, the chicken farm days are over. I think we need to start being more productive because we want to, not because we have to. And going back to controls, you know, taking a holistic approach, you want to kind of maximize daylighting and then change the color temperature during the day. How do you do that in an office environment without adding complexity that, that might confuse the occupant or worse, just, they'll just abandon it, just turn all the so lights back on again? That's, that's an excellent point. Juan and I were talking about that earlier today. In reality, making things simple is not easy. You can have a lot of sophistication in the technology, but the goal of technology is that it's easy, intuitive, and unobtrusive. If it's not those things, it, you have failed, in my opinion, as a technology company, no matter what you do. That's to me as a core principle. And not because you can do it, you should do it. So simplicity should always be the driving principle in design of a space, of the lighting and technology for the right application. How do you do that? You simplify the user interface. At the end of the day, is how the people interact with the space. So either it's automated, so you don't have to touch it, and then the, the design needs to be tipped up, so you, it's not obtrusive, or you just make the user interface incredibly intuitive and simple. So how many of us have been in a hotel potentially and seen some 
number of devices on the wall or either switches or a keypad that has buttons that nobody understands what it does, just write what it does. Make it clear. Make, don't put one, two, three, four, right? Morning, afternoon, or meeting, collaboration, something that is right for the space. That, to me, is what drives, yes, I get it, and it, that's exactly what I wanted to do. But that cannot happen without collaboration with designers. There are a few things that need to be taken into consideration for a successful result. I think that in answer to your question, if it will pick up, it will pick up and it is picking up because naturally we have uh, preferences. Yep. And in preferences, when you actually inbuilt flexibility, you will find your preference and you'll be happy. And if you are restricted of those preferences, somebody took your mobile phone today and told, put it into the bin. It might be, make your life better, but you're going to complain. You know, so everything that you have learned in terms of technology gets acquired as a, as a given right. And then you expect that to be the case. Now, there is a lot of problems at the moment in the technology speaking to technology. And there are a lot of things that need to be sent out. Um, collaboration with designers is one. A collaboration between light fitting manufacturers and lighting control manufacturers to speak the same language, is there is another one. As you're in building complexity to the technology that you're actually developing, yeah, it's not the same to have one source that is an incandescent source and you have a, a diodote <laughs> that, that emits lights and, and sometimes in, in different color temperatures all in, in one chip. They need to be able to speak to each other. And the, currently, The simplicity that we have with a burning source before and a rotary dimmer is not inexistent in, in the conversation between the commercial light sources and the commercial lighting controls. Now, that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist at a professional level and the technology is not there, but it needs to be implemented and required and used and, and proven to be mainstreamed and, and rolled out. And I think we're at the moment in which we are trying to roll that out And finding ourselves in situations like the one that I was talking to Miguel about before I was commissioning a hotel last week and the light bulbs that were a reputable, good manufacturer light bulb were not speaking to the lighting control in the way they had to do because the dimming curves were completely different. So you have to tailor the dimming curve of each individual light not bulb. Not a Lutheran system, I must, no, no, I must say. It, it, regardless, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not fair who, to mention who, anybody. I think that anybody put... And who is that integrator? Where does that role? That's exactly... That's a, well, it's, <laughs> it's integration and it's standardization because if you have to have a professional, yeah. Yeah, every time you set up a mock-up room in a hotel, you're going to kill yourself you know it's not going to be a happy scenario so we need to standardize certain practices to the end result being simplicity as, as miguel was saying simple doesn't mean easy you know you need to in order to get simple you need to go through a lot of difficult things that then will make it easy for the user yeah, to, and to the challenge use. so i wanted to add something to that uh, and bob you know this and the standards we all know this because we work with standards a lot but the challenge that you when you're trying to innovate is that you are pushing the boundary. And as Juan said before, standards and regulation never lead. They catch up with the technology in the market. And when you're trying to innovate, by definition, you are further ahead of the baseline. And that's the challenge that certainly Lutron and other companies have faced, which is we're trying to do a lot, and then you are held back because, as Juan said, you need to we collaborate with other companies more often than not, and now you are delivering the minimum which is not good either, because today the minimum is energy savings, and what we're trying is to make it better for people, not just... If you want it to be efficient, turn the lights off, but that doesn't get us anywhere. So that's the key, that we need to make sure that we can do both, innovate and bring everybody along for and, the ride. And what body is the kind of bringing those standards to, together? Well, it's also not just standards, um, it's competence. So, you know, if we're doing 
teaching at the LIA. So we will now change it from lighting design to it's also energy effective design. So we can use every watt. Instead of just watts per square meter, we'll be doing Lenny lighting energy numeric indicator because that allows you in a, in a, in a metric to make the benefits of lighting controls, daylight linking, turning the lighting off. And, you know, there you go. So you can actually start comparing it and you can, you know, you can start comparing what you designed to what you actually used. And it's just bringing the whole industry up with a level of competence and a passion and explaining that, you know what, we can deliver great lighting for people and the flexibility while simultaneously in use, bringing our in-use carbon to the lowest possible. Well, that's where we've got to go to. So... We're getting there. We're well in advance of what standards are asking us to do, but that's the clear journey. And the how is, I feel, is the real, the biggest challenge I think that we all face because we are all talking about the end results that we want. The challenge is getting there because, yes, if you look at the normal process of any given project, you go from I have an idea to people moving the space, all the stages that are in between with different stakeholders often means that the idea gets diluted when it goes from stage to stage. And we've all seen it, value engineering out uh, something out of a project. And you start losing sight of what the initial goal is. So one thing that I think is critical is that these design intents don't get added at the very end. I've heard from, I think from Juan as well, but from other lighting designers, if you bring me to your project when you're about to deliver it, it's a waste of my time. I won't be able to do anything with it. I won't be able to help you. In fact, I want to make it worse, potentially. So I don't even want to be part of it. It needs to happen at the design stage. And, it's a and, and that, that's Sorry. a really, really key point, because there is a disconnect between actually often who's paying for the building to be used yeah. and who's designing the building or who's constructing the building. So I can give an example of a railway station I was designing. The first brief from the contractors, we don't want any lighting controls. We don't want any DALI. So I said, you do realize that you're giving the operators of that station a massive energy cost. You can't turn the lights off. You can't dim it. But we don't care. We don't get the benefit. We just wanted the cheapest possible construction cost. That's faintly outrageous. But also with that, we no. Had, no, we had to go into writing and say, you do realize the impact this will have. So it goes in. And you mentioned at the head end of this conversation about TM66. Why was that clever? Because one of the team who helped write it, Mark Riddler, then said, if we give a metric that specifiers can add in. So you go, okay, fine. So our, our luminaire will now be a certain lu no, lumen rating, glare, whatever, and a TM66 score. That can get protected through a value engineering exercise. So you're using that as leverage. It gets used as leverage. So, so, so a manufacturer can deliver to it and a specifier can write it and it can get protected. And this value engineering, let's quote Judith Hackett after the Grenfell Tower disaster, value engineering that has nothing to do with value and nothing to do with engineering. Correct. Yeah. Sorry, Paul, just coming back. Could you just explain TM66 to people not familiar? Very briefly. <laughs> uh, I'll be back. How, how, how long have you got? Um, TM66 is all about enabling the circular economy in lighting. So let's look at what circular economy is. It isn't just fixing stuff. Circular economy is, about, is making certain that the resources, the raw materials embodied in any luminaire or any product are used for as long as they possibly can be. 
So that's a mixture of, as one said, he's, he's now going into project and saying, can, what of this can we reuse? What can we move? What could be re-engineered from, say, fluorescent to LED? Or it could be also quality of a fitting. So if we build it good and we build it long and we build it with great thermals, it could be the longevity of lighting controls company. You know, fine, if I go to a lighting controls company and they have a life expectancy of two years, where do I go for my, my service support? Yeah, but also that's a competency, right? Because yeah. you need to make sure that there is a big trend now with the access to technology that you have connectivity companies, which is not the same as a lighting control company. It's not the same as a lighting company. It's very important that you have competence involved in the design of any project, I believe. Be because on lighting controls, um, it's not just when it got designed. It's not just when it got installed. It's how it's going to be used at, at year two, year five, year 10. Let's, tonight, let's all go for a walk around London and let's see how many lights are on and nobody's there. Yeah. And well, many of those buildings had lighting controls. So were they not adequate? Were they not commissioned? Did they slowly fail? Or did somebody just think it's a really cool idea to leave the lights on, you know, all night? So much so that the City of London are now dimming their streetlights yeah. because there's so much light leaking out of no, the office buildings. I love the idea, but it's actually really very the biggest, clever. The, the biggest gain there is not yeah. in the new builds, is not in the Indeed. refurbishment, is in making efficient the existing stock yeah. that we have. Yes. And and retrofitting efficiency is quite complex, but it's, it's where, the, where the effort should be because that's where we would get most of the gains. The fact that we turn the lights off, as, as stupid as it, 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 it's, it's, it looks as a statement, is the most important thing to be efficient, you know? If, you, if you're leaving your lights on, that's, that's it. It's like when your parents used to tell you, switch the lights off. It is the basics that we need to analyze and resolve to make sure that that easy nature of lighting systems happen. And how much monitoring has been adopted by oh, clients? Because I've, oh, got, so I've, I've got my, I've got my oh, Octopus oh, app here oh, and I love looking at my oh, electrical. Oh, and then, another quick question. Because I want to, so I want to pick on something because we can turn the lights off. So, and it's linked to the monitoring point that you're making, which is the highest savings, probably one of the highest savings is just tune the lights down a little bit. When you install new lighting, it's over-specified because you need to account for lumen depreciation over time. So you don't want to throw your lights out after year one. You want to make sure that you have a, a long life installation. So you just by tuning the light down to 90 or 80% to compensate, just gives you the majority of the savings potentially you can get. But now you go back to monitoring, which is linked to this point, which is how do you know that you where to optimize the lighting, and how do you know when you need to tune it up when it's not adequate anymore? And that's the aspect of data as well, which is the other thing that we haven't talked about. Mm -hmm. Lighting control systems today offer many capabilities beyond just lighting. It's the data analysis, special utilization. Things like that can be just adjusted and optimized by having historical data and looking at the monitoring of, it's monitoring of the space. Energy and people. So, in the past, when you went to your, when you go to when you go my English fails there when you go to your meter when you used to go to your meter, yeah, uh, you couldn't tell if it was the oven that was actually taking the energy away or was your light fittings. There is no discerning in between where the energy is being drawn from. Lighting control systems give you that, and I suppose that uh, split met metrage can actually do that too. Um, the question is that, uh, and the fact is that a lighting control system nowadays can give you all of that information. It can even, if, if it's in the right protocols, it can give you the status of the luminaires that is being connected to. So it gives you a lot of other things that 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 are in the right direction, 
to save energy, save usage of materials, save fittings from burning themselves out. Uh, it's, it's all of the protection because it's not only about the energy usage, but the embodied carbon that goes into a fitting that all of a sudden fails because it was overrun. Now, a lighting control system will tell you, oh, I am doing something wrong here. That the fitting will tell the lighting control and the lighting control will tell the, the, the maintenance people that that's okay. So it, it is on all of those things that we can actually improve. And, and it is, uh, it's funny, but the, probably the biggest saving, and I want to play to your tune there, Miguel, the biggest saving that we can actually do by investing on something would be investing in lighting control. So if we want to actually achieve net zero carbon, it's not about pushing technology, making it more efficient in, in terms of the lumens per circuit, what of the, of the sources themselves, but in actually making sure that, that source is not burning up 100% every day, every year. And if it fails and you haven't planned for it, which goes back to the data and the monitoring, predictive maintenance, if now your lights fail in this room that we're in, now these people have an issue and now you need to disrupt their day to day. But if you are, can plan for it because you know when that's going to happen, now you don't disrupt the running of the space. You have less emergency, which causes a lot of also sorts of CO2 emissions as well because now everybody's all hands on deck to solve this problem. It just has all these ancillary benefits that is very difficult to quantify because they happen over such a long period of time that the decision makers often don't see them and it's difficult to make a monetary decision on day one based on these long-term benefits. And how do you sell the, you know, the, the costs and the benefits? Of well, install cost is a big thing. We well, talk a lot exactly, about install cost. Exactly. So capital cost against running cost. Yes. Yeah. That's, that's a, it's so easy to sell lighting controls because <laughs> I, I, I wish I, I, I had that as a job because it's, it's, it's actually it's a no-brainer. <laughs> the maths give you all the time the reason. If you're actually say, talking about installation cost, yeah, obviously, if somebody's actually only thinking about installation cost, but we're not talking about installation cost. If we have the right hat on, we're actually talking about cost and usage and energy throughout the life of the product. So therefore, initial capital cost is what we need. We need to do that investment to save the planet. We really need not, not only lighting controlling, lighting technology in, in, in good quality technology that goes into buildings, because if we keep on installing crap, pardon my French on that front, <laughs> then we're actually going to do a bigger damage to the planet. And, that, and that's and precisely what we're direction. doing. We've been installing less optimal fittings as one so wonderfully described inadequate uh, <laughs> inadequate but but again in stories i remember seeing this amazing um the data you can get out of a good control system it was a very well daylit car dealership in the netherlands and you could clearly see that when they'd mapped it out for a couple of years that you know the load dropping in the summer months when they had all the daylight yeah. The the you know really significant, very impactful. As Miguel said, we have to have when we're doing our calculations maintenance factor. So that's typically we're overlighting by twenty to thirty percent. Yep. Okay. So if we do constant light output, we can cut that when the system's new. What's really good, and we forget, LEDs are electronics, and their drivers are electronics. All electronics light being run cool. So if we start dimming at the beginning of life, we're permanently running them, you know, low at the beginning. They last even longer. Yep. Etc. So it, we get into this world of big data. You can prove it. And then you can say, well, if you keep shutting your blinds, because then we go, we do have to come up against humans. And how many people shut the Venetian blind 
because it's sunny and then it stays shut for the next six well, years n- now you're giving me a, a bone here because <laughs> there you go <laughs> at Lutron we do both the automatic blinds and, and lighting control and the benefit that we have is now you don't get into those positive feedback loops when you shut down the blinds and now the light compensates no you set it up to be the right light output and we manage both to avoid that very problem that you're yeah. talking about and you can do systems where okay if they've manually shut their blind but then maybe there's a reset. So at least next day is all back how it should be. Yeah. We were talking about kids at the, you know, when we were first started. We all know you, your average teenager will not turn their lights off even at knife point because that's what you have to do. You know, they just won't do it. Sorry, actually, we need to make enabling technology simple technology, yeah. usable technology, which just delivers carbon savings. Yep. Otherwise we'll end up being told, like we have at the moment with this um, potential minimum energy performance standards, we'll get told, well, actually, you can only use this one very limited, poorly thought through technology. That's it. That's 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 all you're going to get given. Go like every space with this. And sorry, you know, that's... Not enough. That's I, I just want to ask responsibility. Could we pass it on to the manufacturer with lighting as a service, which I have read about a bit about, but there's not too so too it's much it's, going it's on. I don't I think some companies have tried it uh, and not I, I it's a business model problem because the incentives right now are still not in the right point goes back to value engineering as well to me the key here is that we need to understand that the future of lighting is connected the future of lighting control is connected and we need to think about these installations over time not on day one so. The, as a service aspect of it, I don't like to call it that because it may give the wrong impression. But I think it's important that people understand that the same way that you get new features on your iPhone, you want to have new features in your installation. And I think that's very important to think about these things when you get a service contract, especially with us, I cannot speak of anybody else, we will give you tuning of your space to optimize energy performance over time. And you need to think about these things about the capital cost, the install cost over the line of lifetime of the installation is where I think, I don't know, is lighting as a service is basically tuning as a service. Continuous improvement process is never done. You can always improve on something. The needs of a space change. And I think that needs to be thought about through time. Not That's on day something one. You, you offer. Yes, we do. We do it all the time. We offer something that it's a M&M focus, which basically we will have put in our quotes a day or more for an engineer to walk through the space after everything's installed and people moved in to optimize installation for you. Because we know it's going to be something wrong. So we just take into account that. Some people want to take it out because they want to reduce cost, but we offer, we can put it back in if, if somebody asks us because it's very important. Juan, you're going to say something? No, I, it was, I was just thinking about this notion that we have nowadays ingrained in our brains with with the the update of, of software, you know? Um, if you could update or, or, or your your building just windows and, and lighting all of the time, that would be a perfect world because it would optimize itself. Um, once you build it, you can model that. You can have a twin model. You can actually sure. do that in in design. But reality and design sometimes, the, most of the time, have they a difference. Work. You know. <laughs> um, but the one thing that you can do in order to try to get lighting as close as possible to that software update scenario is to inbuild the flexibility to be able to plug different things. Yep. Lighting controls and, and, and the whole notion of how you uh, wire a building and connect a building, uh, and, and, and this is this exceeds lighting. This is a, a connected building is not only about lighting. We, we at Holy yes. do a, a, a lot of 
integration in general in terms of different parts of the building services and and it's critical that we work together it's fundamental so that sort of flexibility and connection is the key to success in any sort of story in the human centric story yeah. and in the net zero story if we don't achieve that we're going to fail because again the, the typical relationship between mechanical services and, and daylight and yeah the, the solar gains and all all of that if we actually open a, a big window and then sun comes in and heats the whole yeah. thing then the energy goes wasted elsewhere so coordination and making sure that we work together yeah we we have it easy at holy because we have a lot of specialisms within an engineering practice but we still need to work with architects within need to work with structural engineers and it's fundamental that we do that on a thing that we are doing with the north star that is a, a whole thing that I'm not going to explain here in particular but we are dividing our aims and our ethos in working in light into two things one is industry engagement making sure that we tell people what we are doing and ask them to tell us what they are doing so we can learn from each other very quickly it's yeah. fundamental that we do that now and the other one is actually making sure that our practices are in line with what the requirements are because i can actually say to you yes i'm doing the, i'm trying to do the most energy efficient system in the world but then when i design i want to i do my practice is not in line with what i'm saying then practice what you preach uh, exactly and 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 what what happens is and uh, bob mentioned this and, and and miguel mentioned this it's, it's about competence yeah the the competence in the lighting industry needs to be in some way ring fenced and required by clients if that doesn't happen then we are we are a little bit and competence went down with commodification of lighting yeah when somebody no I, I was mentioning Brussels meeting somebody said oh now because the complexity of all of the um, standards and environmental standards we need to deliver to they said if you're going to open a lighting company up now you first need a lawyer and a sustainability expert I said no actually you need an air ticket to Guangzhou in a 40 foot container and it's the fact that they can just ship this stuff out and roll it into an office with no thought and they forgot about the emergency lighting and they didn't care about the controls but hey wow we saved you energy in two years we have to get to competence and we would talk about circular economy and we would talk about customer support we have to also understand that thing about longevity longevity of customer support and innovation great you get the latest whiz bang idea and controls will they be there for you in in a couple of years time because i can you know i know from our own offices in telford we had this amazing human centric seven channel um lighting you know fittings company went down Do you know how I turn the lights off in those rooms? I have to go to the circuit breakers in the cupboard and pull the circuit breaker if I'm going to or here we are in central London, Westminster lost control of their lighting for six months because the company went down. You have to have this level of competence and support and service because as one so correctly said, we're talking about, you know, net zero in 2050. In actual fact, we need to deliver net zero in eight years if we wait till 2050 and we you know we're in we're in a lot of trouble those buildings are built yep so it's how your systems work how resilient they are how robust they are who's going to be supporting it how do they do that you know is it, is it modular is it, is it scalable yeah the alternative to that is we'll hit 2030 we're going to be absolutely draining heat no water with yep. with all sorts of crisis looming and would be compromising for a better word in anything that has to do with ourselves with human so so it it, it will impose to us we will have to switch we'll the have lights a choice. off we'll yeah, have we, a choice. Must, we we don't have a choice so yeah. we we're we're, we're, it, we're coming to the end of our hour here just yeah. to, how can we 
make this happen in the time we have. We'll just go around the table. I'm going to, funny enough, point. you're looking, you, uh, uh, you know, I'm going first, but I'm going to quote Miguel's wonderful statement is because we have to boil down complex stories to simplicity. Mm-hmm. We have to link it to the client's objectives for what they're doing. Yep. But at the same time, we're now balancing that with the planet's requirements. No longer can we afford to purely look on projects as just the capital cost for the equipment. We're looking at what the people in the space need, what the company does, and then give full value to the environmental impact of what we just designed, delivered, installed, and maintained. What? It's a journey, isn't it? And it's, as any other journey, we need to start with a small step. And, and it's the, if, if we haven't actually moved in that direction already, we need to start by the, doing the first step. And, and I think that the first step is making sure the message comes across in the best possible way and that we actually start working together to make sure that, that message happens. And it's not just about the competence of lighting professionals or, or manufacturers, it's about the competence of the building industry yep. working together to really achieve this. Now, it looks like preaching, and, and actually it's, it's, it's easier when you actually say it. It's very difficult to practice. It's very difficult to practice. I am putting my effort today and every day to practice it in the right direction. I make mistakes. And I made mistakes in the past, but I actually hoping by learning that I don't do them anymore. Yeah, and that, that all everything that I do from now on is with a positive impact to people and planet. Yeah, for me, it, I'm going to take a more engineering approach. I'm going to dust off my engineering background and think about it from a different perspective, which is these constraints will drive us to adopt these technologies. Uh, regulation helps us there. I think we all need to work together to drive regulation forward, but we need to strive to be better than the minimum requirements of regulation, and that's by collaboration across the industry. Horali and other uh, design firms with standards development bodies and policy makers, we all need to work together to drive this forward. It's going to help us all, not as businesses, which of course we all part of a business and that's important, but more as people. People, people is the key. We need to make this place better for people. And to do that, we need to work together and collaborate and embrace the technologies and the benefits that they offer. Connectivity, digital technologies, all these things need to be driving the needs from a regulatory requirement so they are adopted across the board. Fantastic. Thanks very much, everybody here today. That was a fascinating conversation. Thank you. I'm going to put a few links underneath the story on the Safety Journal website about TM66 and other resources, Lutron, obviously, the SLL newsletter, and a few of the articles we've written in the Safety Journal about some of these points we're talking about. So thanks very much. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.